So the Old Testament reading is from the book of Habakkuk, chapter 1, verses 1 to 13, and then going straight into chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. So this can be found on pages 940 and then 942 in the Pew Bibles, and on pages 1,511 and 1,516 in the large print Bibles, which are above the cubby holes at the back. Habakkuk chapter 1. The oracle that Habakkuk the prophet received. How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you, violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore the law is paralysed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous, so that justice is perverted. The Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch, and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if you were told. I am raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves and promote their own honour. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. Their cavalry gallops headlong. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. They all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers. They laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own strength is their God. O oh Lord, are you not from everlasting? My God, my Holy One, we will not die. O oh Lord, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O rock, you have ordained them to punish. Your eyes are too pure to look on evil. You cannot tolerate wrong. Why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked swallow up those more righteous than themselves? Though the fig tree does not bud, and there are no grapes on the vines, Though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. And the New Testament reading from Hebrews chapter 11 can be found on page 1,209 of the Church Bibles, 1,908 of the large print edition. Verse 1. Now, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. And continuing at verse 13. All these people were still living by faith when they died. 
They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance. And they admitted that they were aliens and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they are looking for a country of their own. If they had been thinking of the country they had left, they would have had opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be to God. Good morning, everyone. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, on this significant day for reflection in our communities and in our nation, we pray that you will open our minds and hearts to understand your word more deeply and that we might walk more faithfully in the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Habakkuk. Those of you who count yourselves to be Bible scholars probably nod wisely at this point and say, oh yes, yes, Habakkuk. Um, And others of you are thinking, where on earth does Andy dig this stuff up from? Um, Actually, Habakkuk's little book is a gem. It's a treasure. It's not long. You can read it in five minutes, but it's profound and it's very searching. And Uh, We don't have time this morning to survey all of it, but I want to just bring out some parts from this little book in the Old Testament that I think are really, really helpful. Habakkuk's uh, place in history we can locate fairly clearly. Um, He was uh, living in the kingdom of Judah in its last days before the Babylonians swept it away in the last few years. And... um, In the prophecy, he describes himself as standing on the city walls. So about 600 BC, in the last five or six years of the kingdom of of Judah, he is a thinking, reflective man, just trying to understand what on earth is going on around him. Probably already the Babylonians have invaded the country from the north. Perhaps we can imagine him standing on those city walls, looking out to the north, and wondering when those Iraqi hordes, because that's where they come from, will come down onto the city. They've been raping and looting and pillaging there in the, in the north of the kingdom, and they are coming his way. At the same time, he's reflecting on the fact that under all these pressures, his own kingdom is uh, falling apart. There's injustice and there's violence, and there's cruelty, and there's corruption, and and the whole thing is a shambles. He is aware that the world he is looking out on is one that's coming to an end, and it really was. He is standing there at a moment in history when the the, the whole power structures of the Middle East are changing, new powers are coming into being, and he's watching it from the city walls. He's a thoughtful, careful, uh, reflective man. He cries out. His first cry is actually not even a question, but just a shout. Violence. Violence. 
That sums up everything he sees around him. The, the merciless, ruthless uh, Babylonian armies, the cruelty of his own people, the violence of word and, and deed that's around him. And he cries out to God, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at all this injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict. The law is paralyzed. Justice never prevails. That was his world. That's what he looked out, out on. And he was shouting his questions uh, into the sky and to God. There are a lot of similarities, actually, with our own time, because I think we also, and I think we know it deep in our, deep in our insides, that we, we live in a time when actually uh, things are shifting in a very important way across the world. And we don't know what to make of it often. But I think there are some real parallels. There are many things in our world and in our reflection on this day that are really too terrible to contemplate, too terrible to really look into. Over the last couple of years, we've especially revisited the realities of the trenches of the First World War. But those who lived there, those who survived the, the trenches of that war, came home and never spoke of it again. It was too terrible to revisit. They were endlessly haunted in their dreams by what they'd seen and done. My wife's mother, who was German, lived to the end of her days with nightmares and dreams that came from living in Kiel during the Second World War in Germany. The horrors of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, too dreadful to really encounter, too dreadful to really enter into. More recently, Cambodia, Rwanda, and in our own day, the appalling struggles and violence uh, in Syria, before that in Iraq and Afghanistan, the particular horrors of ISIS, and the outflow from all of that, the tidal wave of refugees coming into Europe. And as we speak now, this very morning, even though it's not on the news, wasn't on my news this morning anyway, uh, tens of thousands this very day are trudging their way through the drizzle and through the approaching cold, slipping and sliding through the mud, trying to find a safe place somewhere in Europe. There's the jungle in Calais, so-called because it is not fit for humans to live in. Habakkuk was appalled. He was outraged. And he asks whether God also is appalled and outraged. The answer when it comes is extraordinary and in its way as disturbing and shocking. Verses 5 to 11 in this first chapter where the Lord replies and his reply takes us by surprise. God says, I'm still in control. I've not lost control. In fact, these terrible events and this terrible turmoil which you, which you see and at which you are appalled and outraged, in a strange way, in ways you cannot comprehend, I am using for my purpose. Actually, this is the, these evil and violent Babylonians 
are the very tools I am using to bring in my purpose and to bring in my, my rule. They also will face justice and judgment, but in their ignorance, they work out my very purpose. These are extraordinary verses. We can sometimes read these things and pass on without really just letting the significance of what's being said sink in. And I just encourage you just to pause for a moment at, at this point. Is this a possibility for the world in which we live that we could also embrace, that we could also hear? Is this a reality that we can hold on to in a world that's full of tumult and up, upheaval? Dare we say to ourselves, God is still in control. This is still his world. He is still sovereign. And in ways I can't see, his purpose is still unfolding. Let's just let that hang there for, for a moment. We need to hear what is in the text here. We also need to take care before we take it on our lips, I think, because the implications are tremendous. Let's just pause there a moment. I think, and I deliberately say I think, I think three really big things are happening in the world at the moment. Three really significant things that will change the shape of the future. Not unlike, in their way, the things that Habakkuk was looking out on. First is this. We are watching the collapse and the violent implosion of a number of states across the Middle East. Afghanistan and Iraq, most powerfully at the moment, Syria, possibly Lebanon, Libya, in the wings, we are watching Somalia, perhaps Eritrea, and mercifully, at the moment, we don't need to add Nigeria to that list. You will remember some months ago, as they faced important elections, we were really praying for that country. Mercifully, out of those elections seems to have come um, a more hopeful situation. We live in a world in which 60 million refugees are displaced worldwide. 4,290,000 Syrians are registered as refugees. 1.9 million of them live in Turkey. 1.2 million of them live in Lebanon. And the UN is asking for $4.5 billion to provide them with essentials. More than half a million Syrians have applied for asylum in Europe this year alone and the leading edge of that, as we are well aware, is the massive and overwhelming influx of refugees into Europe with winter approaching. The Middle East will never be the same again. We know that. We, even those of us who really have little political awareness and perhaps not a lot of interest know in our gut the Middle East will not be the same again. Secondly, we are watching also possibly the impending disappearance of ancient Christian communities across the Middle East. 
It's not been in the news so much recently, but some months ago we were thinking about this in a very focused way. And across many countries of the Middle East where there have been significant Christian communities for 2,000 years, they are vanishing, they are fleeing, their churches and their institutions are being destroyed. All the churches and church institutions in Mosul, for example, a very ancient uh, Christian center in Iraq, have been closed, confiscated, and many of them destroyed. Christian communities throughout Iraq, Syria, North Africa, and Palestine are declining rapidly. It's been going on for decades, but it's happening even faster now. Some people say there should be a Christian state in the Middle East where Christians could live in as a kind of refuge. That makes Christians, I read this morning, very, very anxious that they will simply be a simpler target. And the third thing is this. There is, to quote a recent book, a wind in the house of Islam. And one of the most extraordinary things happening at the moment, and not only in the Middle East, but across the whole Muslim world from West Africa to Indonesia, is an extraordinary number of really significant movements uh, towards Christ in the Muslim world. In a recent book, uh, David Garrison identifies 82 significant Christian movements to Christ across that whole region. Movements that involve thousands of people, not just handfuls. Um, it's not widely uh, publicized, it, wisely it can't, but it's really happening out there. This is unprecedented. It has never happened before in 13, 14 centuries of, uh, of Islam. There has never been uh, uh, a movement of this kind. It is really significant. Iran is perhaps one of the nations where this has been most uh, powerfully evident. Um, throughout Iran, there are hundreds now of little house churches many of them more accurately, flat churches living in high-rise blocks in Tehran and, and other cities, many of them living in virtual isolation from other Christian groups, many of them actually coming into being through Christian television, Sat7 and others, uh, Sat7 we support as a, as a church. Um, some years ago, uh, whilst I was here at St. Saviour's, I went with a number of people from St. Saviour's to help teach on a course in Turkey for church leaders from those very house churches. Very moving hearing their stories. But there are hundreds of such churches in Iran. And across Europe, there are also many, many uh, new congregations of new converts uh, to Christ uh, from the Persian communities in this country uh, and in Germany and in Scandinavia particularly. Extraordinary things are happening. And in Sudan, in Egypt, in West Africa, in Indonesia, there are continually uh, stories of Muslims who are deeply weary, deeply disillusioned with their whole experience of Islam, uh, seeking, uh, seeking Christ and seeking what faith in Christ might, might mean for them. The foundations of the Middle East, as they have been in place for hundreds of years, are shifting profoundly at the present time. We need, as it were, to stand on the ramparts of our own time, stand on the city walls and observe and watch and learn. We need to do what Habakkuk did, to seek to see, to seek to understand, to seek to get your mind around it and to 
offer it all up in, in free roaming prayer as, as our hearts dictate. Confusion, bewilderment, encouragement, hope, excitement. I am going to do something in your day that you would not believe even if I told you, said the Lord. In conclusion, back to Habakkuk on his wall. Chapter 2 begins like this. I will stand at my watch, and I will station myself on the ramparts. I will look to see what the Lord will say to me. There he is. He's gone back to his place on the walls. He's gone back to the place where he can see, where he can gaze, where he can be alone perhaps, where he can hear the voice of the Lord. And the Lord replies, write down the revelation. We're privileged to read it today. Write down the revelation. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. And here it is, this simple phrase. The righteous will live by his faith. The righteous will live by his faith. Is that it? Is that the whole thing? Is there nothing else? No, that's it. The righteous will live by his faith. What does it mean? As the book unfolds, I think it becomes plain that this is what it means. It means that actually there is a place for the believer in God to live in such a world. There is a place for vitality of spirit and soul. There is a place to be truly alive, truly living, even in such a time of tumult. And we do it with the power and the energy that faith in the living God provides. That's where we need to live in such a time, and I believe we live in such a day. We need to lay hold more and more securely of that fundamental commitment of faith, of trust, of belonging in the Creator God, our Father God, our Savior God, the God who is the God of history. Even though where it is all heading is hidden from our understanding, we remain committed to the one who is in control, who is present, who is never wrong-footed, but who is working out his purposes and bringing all things to a climax and towards the fulfillment of his kingdom. So that we learn to live not by our own diminutive grasp of things, but actually in hopefulness, trust and faith in the living God whom we have met in Jesus. We find this kind of faith in a number of places in Scripture. We find it in Job, in those, that extraordinary phrase of his, even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. What a way to live. Even if in the end my faith in God costs me my life, yet I will trust him utterly. I will know I am safe in his hand. Or the faith of those young friends of Daniel when they were thrown into the fiery furnace or as they defied the king before that, our God can deliver us, O king. But even if not, we will not bow the knee to false idols. 
And this is the kind of vision of life and the vision of faith uh, that the New Testament book addressed to the Hebrews lays out for us. Faith, the idea of faith is used in the New Testament in several different ways. Here it is used in, in the way I'm trying to talk about it this morning. Faith is being certain of the things which in the end we can't prove, the things we can't see, but the things which are ultimately fully reliable because they are rooted in God. And such people, the writer of the Hebrews, in chapter 11, he lays out example after example of the, the people who lived this way, living by trust in the living God, whose ultimate purposes they, they didn't know, but there was only one way to live in such a world, and that is by faith in the one true God. They admitted they were strangers and aliens on earth. They were longing for the heavenly city that God has prepared for them, and therefore God is not ashamed of them. It's people who live this way. It's people who are willing to live with such a faith in a tumultuous world where everything is shifting and changing. God is not ashamed of them. They are his people. They're his people, his sons and daughters, the ones he owns, the ones he will stand by. And so when we reach the end of Habakkuk's little, little book, we're not surprised that this man who's faced the violence of his world, faced its insecurity, faced the troubles that are overwhelming his people. And we find at the end he's able to say this, though the fig tree does not blossom, and though there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go to the heights. What, it might, what might it look like to live as a church like that? Not withdrawing into a place of comfort, but uh, into a place of prophetic observation, a place where we are open to the world and its real challenges and seeking to live in that deep, profound, risky faith in the living God. It means a church that's prophetic, a church that is praying, a church that is peacemaking, and a church that proclaims God's love.